Hey everybody, I'm Alistair Stevens of Point North Media, and this is There and Back Again. This week, in our 39th session exploring J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, we're going to wrap up our discussion of Book 3, Chapter 4, with the tale of the Antwives, one of the more disquieting, one of the more tragic tales in all of Tolkien's Legendarium. And then, hopefully, we're going to push on to Chapter 5 to discuss The White Rider, a long-awaited, though unexpected, return of a fan-favorite character here to the pages of The Two Towers. It is lovely to have you all here with me on this odd afternoon session. We've got Alice joining for the first time. We've got Jane joining for the first time. We've got uh, Zoikno, or Zoikno, I'm, I'm assuming that's a hearty. Zoisno, I suppose it could be, but I'm going to go with the, the elven pronunciation and assume that it is Zoikno. I, I kind of like that one. It's good to have Heroes and Bards and Leslie Skipa and Angela Lurie and Shane joining us. Guys, it is great to have you all here. I am going to say right up front that I am almost certainly not going to get through the truly epic number of slides that I've prepared for this week's discussion. We have all of the Antwives to cover. We have the Antmoot to cover. We have the March to Isengard to cover. And then, you know, Chapter 5. There's a lot of material here. So let me begin by saying that I've scheduled an extra session because there have also been a couple of things happened this week in the world of Tolkien fandoms and Tolkien studies, I suppose, which we should probably address. Christopher Tolkien has stepped down from his position in the Tolkien estate, though he is still the literary executor of Tolkien's uh, Tolkien's legendarium, I suppose, of, of all of the accrued and accumulated works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And there's the minor issue of the new Amazon TV adaptation of Tolkien's work. Not, by all accounts, a TV adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Rather, we're going to dip a little into the backstory. We're going to talk about that in due course, but not in this session. Instead, we're going to talk about that on Sunday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. That is a special bonus 40th edition of There and Back Again, and then we'll pick up as usual next week. Actually, that's not true. We won't pick up as usual next week because we're not going to have a Thursday show next week because it is Thanksgiving here in the U.S. We are instead going to have a Wednesday show next week. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to cover a lot of ground on Sunday. We're going to cover a lot of ground next week. The pace only ever accelerates here at There and Back Again. But without further ado, let's get into the discussion that we postponed from last week with the tale of the Antwives. As you may remember, Merry and Pippin have now found themselves in the company of Treebeard of Beard Tree Forest, the individual known as Fangorn within the forest known as Fangorn. We have been introduced conceptually to the notion of Ents. We've had some wonderful accounts of what Ents are and where they came from. We dipped a little into the Silmarillion backstory last time to talk about where the Ents came from, their place in the overall structure of Arda, the overall structure of the, the creation of Iluvatar and the Valar. This week, though, we're going to focus on, as I say, the Antwives. Let's begin with our first slide here. I will also apologize right up front because my voice still isn't quite back to where it should be, so forgive me if... Uh, if there are any moments in the next hour and a half that are a little bit difficult to listen to, here is our slide. After some time, the hobbits heard him murmuring again. He seemed to be counting on his fingers. Fangorn, Finglus, Fladriff, I, I, he sighed. The trouble is that there are so few of us left, he said, turning toward the hobbits. Only three remain of the first Ents that walked in the woods before the darkness. Only myself, Fangorn, and Finglas and Fladriff, to give them their elvish names. You may call them Leaflock and Skinbark, if you like that better. And of us three, Leaflock and Skinbark are not much use for this business. 
The flock has grown sleepy, almost tree-ish, you might say. He has taken to standing by himself, half asleep all through the summer with the deep grass of the meadows round his knees, covered with leafy hair he is. He used to rouse up in winter, but of late he has been too drowsy to walk far even then. Skinbark lived on the mountain slopes west of Isengard. That is where the worst trouble has been. He was wounded by the orcs, and many of his folk and his tree herds have been murdered and destroyed. He has gone up into the high places among the birches that he loves best, and he will not come down. Still, I dare say I could get them together. I could get together a fair company of our younger folks if I could make them understand the need. If I could rouse them, we are not a hasty folk. What a pity there are so few of us. "'Why are there so few when you have lived in this country so long?' asked Pippin. "'Have a great many died?' "'Oh, no,' said Treebeard. "'None have died from inside, as you might say. "'Some have fallen in the evil chances of the long years, of course, "'and more have grown tree-ish. "'But there were never many of us, and we have not increased. "'There have been no endings, no children, you would say, "'not for a terrible long count of years. "'You see, we lost the Entwives.' "'How very sad,' said Pippin. "'How was it that they all died?' "'They did not die,' said Treebeard. "'I never said died. "'We lost them,' I said. "'We lost them, and we cannot find them.' "'He sighed. "'I thought most folk knew that. "'There were songs about the hunt of the Ents for the Entwives, "'sung among elves and men from Mirkwood to Gondor. "'They cannot be quite forgotten.' "'Last time,' as Treebeard was introducing us to the concept of elves, he talked a little about this, this reciprocal relationship between ants, excuse me, ants, I should say, between ants and trees. That is that some ants slow down and become more tree-ish, and some trees awaken and become more entish. So there are only three ants now of the first breed remaining here in Fangorn Forest. Three true ants, if you like. But trees have... Awoken, they have become like unto ants. And the dividing line between what a, a tree that has become entish is like and what an ant is actually like seems to be rather thin. There is no primary distinction. And yet, Treebeard is drawing a very clear distinction. There have been no entings. There have been no children now for a long span of years. The trees that awake are not quite the same. They are... They have become entish, but they are not quite true ants. And we might be able to discern a distinction, a functional, meaningful distinction as we move through this chapter, and certainly as we move through the rest of the accounts of Treebeard and his folk and the rest of his appearance here in the, in, in the two towers. Uh, Angela says, it's interesting with all the talk of how slow the ants are. They decided and took action pretty quickly compared with other events in Lord of the Rings. Months and years for Gandalf to figure out the one ring was Bilbo's. Right, 70 years for Gandalf to figure that out. And of course, it's well worth noting that the ant moot that we get in this chapter, for all that it is a long and drawn out process, is nothing like as torturous for the reader as the Council of Elrond, right? Is Tolkien making a point here? Are we supposed to see the rhythm of the ants in a slightly different way than we see the rhythm of the mortal races, the children of Iluvatar? Well, yes, maybe. I think that the slowness of the ants 
is absolutely consistent with their context. That is to say that they exist within the frame of a community, the, the broadest possible arboreal community. They exist within the context of a community that moves slowly, that has a slower rhythm than the rhythms of elven society or the society of man or certainly the society of hobbits who by all accounts are pretty frantic. Hobbits move very swiftly compared to the other races, but the trees move slowly. The trees are are themselves moving in accordance with the rhythm of the seasons around them. Not just the seasons, though certainly we get this account here um, of, of Leaflock here. Uh, he's taken to standing by himself half asleep all through the summer with the deep grass of the meadows around his knees covered with leafy hair he is. He used to rouse up in winter, but of late he has been too drowsy to walk far even then. Of late, of course, we're referring to multiple winters here. So of late, he doesn't move around that much, even in the winter. But of course, in order for us to distill that information out of Leaflock's experience and out of our experience of Leaflock, we have to have multiple winters, probably many winters to draw that generalization. So even here, as we're talking about, you know, yeah, he, he used to be more spry, but, you know, he's getting on in years a little bit. He's becoming a little more tree-ish. We're talking years, if not decades, of experience here. The rhythms of Fangorn Forest, the rhythms of forests in general, the rhythms of the ants and the trees alike are so much slower. Therefore, their relative lack of urgency, their relative lack of haste, while it may seem slow from a hobbitish perspective, it is in a way more in accord with the natural rhythms of their lives than the Council of Elrond was, for example. Yeah. It's like the Ents are out of shape, says Jackie. Right. They're just, they're just sinking into a comfortable middle age. You know, we all become, I think, a little more tree-ish, particularly now in the midst of November as the weather is turning colder. I think we're all getting just a little more tree-ish, just putting down deeper roots and, and cloaking ourselves for the winter. Yes. <laughs> Good. Um, yes, as Seastar says, the ant moot was a lot faster than many political slash bureaucratic decision-making processes in our world, too. Absolutely, though we can't, we can't exaggerate the clear and present danger that the ant moot is responding to. We can't exaggerate or, or overstate the urgency of, of the, the Isengard issue here. More on that as we get to it. Katie is joining us. Good to have you with us, Katie. Um, Alice says, the description of Leaflock's dotage reminds me of Bilbo's later years in Rivendell. Lots of sleeping and thinking. And Heroes and Bard says, I'm now referring to long naps as ent naps. Yeah, I'm just going to go and ent for a little while. I'm just going to go and become tree-ish for a little while. Gosh, that doesn't sound like a bad way to spend this afternoon, does it? Not, not a bad way at all. Except, of course, that we're here talking about Tolkien, and that is infinitely superior. So this is, more importantly, our introduction to the story of the Entwives. And we see here... Pippin's immediate hobbitish perspective. How very sad. How was it that they all died? They did not die, said Treebeard. I never said died. We lost them, I said. We lost them and cannot find them. This is the tragedy of the ants. This is, for my money, at least one of the saddest stories that we are ever going to get in Tolkien's Legendarium. And it is all the more sad because it is ultimately, spoilers, I guess, it is ultimately unresolved. In personal correspondence, Tolkien was very much of the opinion that, no, actually, the ants never find the antwives, that the antwives have all gone. Maybe they have died now. Maybe they were wiped out by the scourge of the Brownlands to the north of Mordor following the War of the Last Alliance, you know, following the, the, the return of Sauron to Mordor. Maybe they all died during that scourge, or maybe they were twisted and corrupted and turned a kind of, of you know, turned tyrannical themselves and were had to be, you know, measures had to be taken to remove them. But as far as Tolkien was concerned, 
No, the Ents never found the Entwives. And this, of course, is entirely consistent with Tolkien's approach to his entire history of Arda, the entire ancient history of our world. Remember that this was originally conceived as an ancient history of our world, and though he's moderated that a little in the writing of The Lord of the Rings and in the development of this story, I'm going to say the writing of The Lord of the Rings, I mean the process, the time span during which he was writing The Lord of the Rings, which involved a lot of rewriting of The Hobbit and the attendant materials through the Silmarillion and so on and so forth. He's kind of moderated that impulse a little bit. It is not quite as literally an ancient history of our world as it was in its initial conception, but it is still a story of ancient prehistory, right? This is why the elves dwindle and diminish and go into the West. Because from our perspective here in the modern world, the elves have dwindled and diminished and gone into the West. Dwindled both, both in, in number and in physical presence. This is Tolkien's accounting for how we move from you know, the Green Knight of, of Sir Gawain and the, and, and the Green Knight. We, we move from the elves of fairy in the medieval period down to the elves of the Victorian period. We move from the Green Knight, if you like, to Tinkerbell. That's the progression of, of elvendom on Earth from the medieval period to the Victorian period. That's, you know, in our actual history, that is what happened to them. From Tolkien's perspective, there were still real elves, perhaps not in the medieval period, but in a period recent enough from the medieval perspective that we could still tell stories about them. Similarly, the ants. There are no ants in our world now. Therefore, they must have vanished. They must have died out. They must have become tree-ish. Not completely. Trees can still rouse themselves into presence and into sentience and into agency. This is still a thing that Tolkien believes to be true about forests, even in the 20th century. What few forests are left, what meager forests are left. The individual trees may still in a sense, representing their, their arboreal community, may still become sentient, may still become alive in that quintessentially entish sense. So the ants are going, from our perspective, to... Okay, wait, <laughs> pronouns are difficult. The ants are going to, from the perspective of Middle-earth, die out. The ants have, from our perspective, already died out. And this is part of the reason why. And we're going to talk a little about why it is that the antwives separated. It is, a rather, it is rather a strange and sad story, he went on after a pause. When the world was young and the woods were wide and wild, the Ents and the Entwives, and there were Ent maidens then, ah, the loveliness of Fimbrithil, of one limb the light-footed in the days of our youth, they walked together and they housed together, but our hearts did not go on growing in the same way. The Ents gave their love to things that they met in the world, and the Entwives gave their thought to other things. For the Ents loved the great trees and the wild woods and the slopes of the high hills, and they drank of the mountain streams and ate only such fruit as the trees let fall in their path, and they learned of the elves and spoke with the trees. But the Entwives gave their minds to the lesser trees, and to the meads in the sunshine beyond the feet of the forests, and they saw the slow in the thicket, and the wild apple, and the cherry blossoming in spring, and the green herbs in the waterlands in summer, and the seeding grasses in the autumn fields. They did not desire to speak with these things, but they wished them to hear and obey what was said to them. The Entwives ordered them to grow according to their wishes and bear leaf and fruit to their liking, for the Entwives desired order and plenty and peace, by which they meant that things should remain where they had set them. So the Entwives made gardens to live in, 
but we ants went on wandering, and we came to the gardens now and again. Then, when the darkness came in the north, the entwives crossed the great river and made new gardens and tilled new fields, and we saw them more seldom. After the darkness was overthrown, the land of the entwives blossomed richly, and their fields were full of corn. Many men learned the crafts of the entwives and honored them greatly, but we were only a legend to them, a secret in the heart of the forest. Yet here we, are, we still are, while all the gardens of the entwives are wasted. Men call them the brown lands now. The brown lands, as we discussed, the lands to the north of Mordor, scourged by fire at the behest of Sauron. What is the distinction, then, between the Ents and the Entwives? Well, at one time, they were of compatible spirits, at least. They were companionable, the one with the other. They lived together. They housed together. There were children. There were Entings. There were Ent maidens, even. The loveliness of Fimberthil, of Wandlim, the light-footed in the days of our youth, as Treebeard remembers. But the Ents love the wild places. They love the forest as the forest intends to be. They love the mountains as the mountains intend to be. They do not tend the land except in opposition to the younger races. They do not, they do not garden, but they preserve, might be a better way of putting it. But the entwives garden. The entwives have no desire for wildness. They have no desire to explore the world as it was quote-unquote, meant to be in its wildest state. They have no desire to see what lies beyond the next hill and to, to treat with the trees and the other, the other elements of nature on their own terms. No, they seek to govern. They seek to guard more specifically, more deliberately. They select, they garden, they make gardens. The Entwives made gardens to live in. And, and look at how Treebeard uh, marks this. The Entwives ordered them to grow according to their wishes and bear leaf and fruit to their liking, for the Entwives desired order and plenty and peace, by which they meant that things should stay where they were put. That is what peace means. Treebeard here leaning toward the idea that the natural order is in a sense one of conflict, not malevolent conflict, a kind of actually benign, chaotic conflict, but a conflict nonetheless. The wilderness, even within the bounds of Fangorn, the trees are competing with one another. The, the, all of the elements of Fangorn are competing with one another. All of the elements of the old forest are competing with one another. They are not ordered to the, 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 the likely, the, 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 I'm trying to think of the right form of this word, and it's just not coming to me for some reason, but they are not ordered to the wishes of the gardener. They are not planned. They are not governed. They are not cultivated in that sense. The Entwives, though, wanted gardens. And even then, the Ents were able to go into the gardens. They were able to, to treat with and, and relate to the Entwives. But then when the great darkness comes in the north, that is the coming of Morgoth, the coming of Melkor, the Entwives retreated across the river, across the Anduin, into the east from where we are now. And that river worked as a functional divide. And they created great gardens. They created, after the darkness was overthrown, the land of the Entwives blossomed richly and their fields were full of corn. Many men learned the crafts of the Entwives and honored them greatly. So this is the beginning of agriculture. This is the beginning of a more 
civil process, if you like, right? One of the great tensions in the historical development of any society is that turning point, that turning point where we move from the hunter-gatherer culture to the agrarian culture. That's a, a huge and fundamental shift, a transition in the development of any society. And now not only have the Entwives undergone that transition themselves, but they are teaching men. They are teaching men to cultivate and to order. Now, men themselves have become forces of civility as taught by the Entwives. But this is a rift. Here we still are, says Treebeard, while all the gardens of the Entwives are wasted. Men call them the Brownlands now. And of course, we're going to talk more about the Brownlands later. Yes. Um, Yes, Rayla Lynn is anticipating exactly a conversation that I wanted to have today. The difference between the Ents and the Entwives reminded me of the Victorian ideal of the female and male spheres. This to me is fascinating, and this only really occurred to me as I was reading the book for this time. Can we extrapolate out from the story of the Ents and the Entwives to a broader perspective on traditional gender roles, a kind of a kind of innate gender bias in, you know, the masculine and the feminine impulses. Is it fair to say of Tolkien's work that the masculine impulse is wild and exploratory while the feminine impulse is ordered and cultivated? Is that a fair extrapolation to pull? It is certainly true of the ants, right? It is true of the ants and the ant wives. Is it true of the other race as well? It's actually very, very difficult to pin down because you guys, we just don't have a lot of evidence. We just don't have many female characters. There's one powerful example that I can think of at the end of The Return of the King with regard to Eowyn, not possibly the moment that we think of with regard to Eowyn at the end of, uh, the, end of the Return of the King, the kind of epilogic role of Eowyn in the world. And also possibly to some extent Arwen, but we'll talk about that too when we get to it, is Tolkien representing here a, a more general bias in a kind of conventional and, and certainly not prescriptive, but descriptive kind of gender identity? Well, maybe. It's certainly something that I'm going to be thinking about a lot. And of course, we've already had one example of this, right? We've already had one example that has been discussed in these pages. In this chapter, we've talked a little about Karas Galathon. We've talked a little about Lothlorien. And by extension, we've talked about the Lady Galadriel and her preservation of the Garden of Lothlorien. Lothlorien, no matter what happens now, is going to fade. No matter how things turn out with Sauron, how things turn out with Frodo's quest to Mount Doom, Lothlorien is going to fade because... Lothlorien is a garden. And when we cultivate, we make that, that space, we make our garden vulnerable. The wilderness cannot fall. It can be destroyed. It can be scourged. It can be burned. It can be hacked down by, you know, orcs coming out of Isengard, chopping down the trees and letting the wood rot where it falls. The worst misuse of a forest that it is possible to conceive of. But the wilderness cannot falter. The wilderness, because it exists in this Hobbesian state of, you know, all against all, this, this, this naturally kind of antagonistic, mutually competitive kind of state, the wilderness itself as a, as a gestalt entity will endure. But the garden won't. Gardens can fall. Gardens can falter. Gardens can fade. What do we make of that in the context of the ants and the antwives? Well, let's, uh, uh, yes, uh, Corporeal says the exceptions prove the rule, really, that we have to say, but Eowyn is really the point. Yes, talking about the uh, the presence of, of women here. Hey, you guys, we'll probably talk about that a little bit on Sunday when we're talking about the Amazon TV show. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, Jackie says, I think there are so many exceptions that you can't really pin down the professor's gender roles. That I think is absolutely fair. That I think is is 
True. I might be tempted, were we not already short on time, to return to the pages of the Silmarillion. I might be tempted, you guys, to talk a little about Ale and Yuvana, right? I might be tempted to talk a little about the gender differential among the Valar in particular. We can't really do that with complete authority, not least of all because it would require the reading of the entire Silmarillion, or at least, you know, the first third of the Silmarillion, but we will get there ultimately. But this is something to keep in mind as we move forward. But certainly, 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 Galadriel is an interesting data point as we're as we're plotting these elements as we're speculating in this particular direction we must consider Galadriel and the creation of this <laughs> charitably nature preserve of Lothlorien not even a nature preserve right more artificial than that a theme park of Lothlorien Lothlorien is the Disneyland of of Middle Earth here it is absolutely artificial and so carefully constructed that it feels natural and that's a very deceptive kind of artifice. That's a very powerful kind of artifice. That is not to equate, of course, Galadriel outright with, uh, with um, the Antwives, or certainly not to equate Galadriel with the other crafter of artifice and cunning Saruman that we're discussing in these chapters. But there is still, I think, a similar intent there. Um, good, let me see as I catch up with the chat. You guys are chatty today. Uh, Becca says, I still vote the Entwives would now be hanging in the wood between worlds because it is a perfect garden. Beautifully put, Becca. Beautifully put. Yes. Good. Good. All right. Let's move on to the second half of this story. I remember it was long ago. In the time of the war between Sauron and the men of the sea, desire came over me to see Fimbrithil again. Very fair she was still in my eyes when I had last seen her, though little like the Entmaiden of old. For the Entwives were bent and browned by their labor, their hair parched by the sun to the hue of ripe corn, and their cheeks like red apples. Yet their eyes were still the eyes of our own people. We crossed over Anduin and came to their land, but we found a desert. It was all burned and uprooted, for war had passed over it, but the Entwives were not there. Long we called, and long we searched, and we asked all folk that we met which way the Entwives had gone. Some said they had never seen them, and some said they had seen them walking away west, and some said east, and others south. But nowhere that we went could we find them. Our sorrow was very great, yet the wild wood called, and we returned to it. For many years we used to go out every now and again and look for the Entwives, walking far and wide and calling them by their beautiful names. But as time passed, we went more seldom and wandered less far. And now the Entwives are only a memory for us, and our beards are long and grey. The elves made many songs concerning the search of the Ents, and some of the songs passed into the tongues of men. But we made no songs about it being content to chant their beautiful names when we thought of the Entwives. We believe that we may meet them again in a time to come, and perhaps we shall find somewhere a land where we can live together and both be content. But it is foreboded that that will only be when we have both lost all that we now have. And it may well be that the time is drawing near at last, for if Sauron of old destroyed the gardens, the enemy today seems likely to wither all the woods. There was an elvish song that spoke of this, or at least so I understand it. It used to be sung up and down the great river. It was never an Entish song, mark you. It would have been a very long song in Entish. But we knew it by heart, and hum it now and again. This is how it runs in your tongue. And we'll take a look at that song 
in just a moment. A couple of quick things that I want to pull out here. In the transformation of the Entwives, in their, their bending and browning by their labor, their hair parched by the sun to the hue of ripe corn, their cheeks like red apples, they have become physically altered by their labors. And their labors here kind of metonymically uh, representative of their, their purpose, their craft, their art, their philosophy even, their nature almost. They began as ants, that is to say, they began looking very much like trees, but they became more like gardens of corn and of apples. And I'm using gardens here representatively, that's the word that we use, but when we think of gardens we might also think of farms. I mean, we perhaps might think more directly in the modern sense of farms. We're thinking of cultivated land and cultivated crop here. So the antwives change, but they don't change completely. The eyes are still the eyes of our own people. And we may remember here the introduction to Treebeard's eyes like wells of deep memory. This idea that all that Treebeard has experienced is visible in his eyes. And Treebeard, as we know, well, eldest is challenging. Again, we're probably going to end up talking about Tom Bombadil. We may end up talking about, you know, some of the very, very oldest elves. But at the very least, we can say with authority that Treebeard is among the eldest creatures in all of Middle-earth, and he remembers all of it. And that, that deep well of recollection, that deep, deep experience that informs the present is a quintessential part of Treebeard and is therefore an important part of the Antwives too. And we know that the memory, the, the experience of the Antwives is important. We know that because of the references here to the names. It's interesting. The elves made many songs concerning the search for the ants, and some of the songs passed into the tongues of men, but we made no songs about it, being content to chant their beautiful names when we thought of the Antwives. What is the chanting of a beautiful name of an Antwife? What does that sound like? Well, Treebeard has already told us what names are in Old Entish. The name of a thing is the complete accumulated story of that thing. So when they chant the names of the Entwives, they are singing the songs of the Entwives. They are remembering the history of the Entwives, the experiences and the interactions and the relationships, the nature of the Entwives. They're not making songs of the search for the Entwives because they don't have to. They are singing constantly, always and forever, the names by which we mean the stories of the vanished antwives. They are still remembered. And that's powerful. And the thought of the ants going out into the brown lands, crossing the Anduin, crossing, you know, this, this great dividing river and how they cross the Anduin, we can only speculate. You know, that's a, that's a powerful, epic, mythic image in its own right. But crossing into the brown lands and singing on the, the, the still air of an autumnal evening, singing the song, singing the name of each of the antwives, that is one of the most romantic and, and tragic images that you'll get in this entire book for my money. Yes, as Lynette says, that song has always been so creepy to me. Yes, Angela's clarifying here. Gandalf says that Treebeard was one of the oldest, if not the oldest creatures of Middle-earth, the eldest, right? He's referred to as the eldest, which makes us go, ah, uh, but Tom Bombadil, though? Um, maybe Tom Bombadil? I don't know. Possible? We can, you know, speculate a little about the nature of Tom Bombadil and the nature of Treebeard and, and quite where we draw the defining line. You know, we'll actually talk about it. I've pulled that slide, so we'll talk about that when we get to... Uh when we get to uh, to um, when we get to, to Gandalf's account later in this reading, yes, good. 
Joseph says, can you imagine an ent convention? The name tags would be a nightmare. That's kind of what I want, though, right? That's it's If we ever hold a, a there and back again convention, I think that we should all have, you know, our names, our, our you know, Westron common speech names, and then maybe our elven names underneath, you know, something in Cinderin, something in Quenya. We can have something beautiful and, and lyrical underneath. And then we can have, you know, just a long strip of paper, like a, like a you know, a, a, a cash register receipt kind of spooling out from that with our entire biography. This is my entish name is for on the 15th of June in 1978, I was born in the northeast of Scotland. You know, I just gave up my birthday on a podcast. Hey, you guys, that's fine. 15th of June next year, I expect you all to send me a gift. That's just, this is the reciprocal relationship that we've established here on there and back again. I think that's how that works. So what happened? The Entwives went off. They formed their gardens. The gardens were, de were destroyed and the Entwives moved on. Possibly. Some say that they were never seen. Some say that they went east into uncharted lands, south into uncharted lands, west into lands that we should know. And yet, would we even recognize the Entwives now? Treebeard doesn't know what they look like. But remember that he said to Marion Pippin in our last reading that they would have liked the Shire. Why would they have liked the Shire? Why does the story of the Shire sound so appealing to Treebeard? Not individually, directly appealing to Treebeard. He might prefer hanging out in the old forest, but the Antwives, oh, the Antwives would go crazy for Buckland. They would love Buckland. What have you done? You've pushed back the old forest and made farmland? Yes, that is where the Antwives have gone, obviously. The Antwives love the farm. They love the field. They love the garden. And you can't help but feel that one Samwise Gamgee might have a thing or two to say to an antwife. There might be some very long conversations there. Yeah. Okay, let's uh, move on to our next slide. This is our song. So this is a song that is sung in Elven, Elvish, along the banks of the Anduin. It is translated here into the tongue of men, into Westron. This is not an Entish song, but it is significant that Treebeard is giving it, right? That he has learned the song. Again, the Ents have no need of songs of the Antwives because they remember their names. And the name of the Antwife is the most compelling song that could be written about the Antwife. It is the whole story of the Antwife. But this is what the elves make of it. So the Ent sings, when spring unfolds the beechen leaf and sap is in the bough, when light is on the wildwood stream and wind is on the brow, when stride is long and breath is deep and keen the mountain air, come back to me, come back to me, and say my land is fair. The antwife responds, when spring is come to garth and field and corn is in the blade, when blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid, when shower and sun upon the earth with fragrance fill the air, I'll linger here and will not come because my land is fair. The ant replies, when summer lies upon the world and in a noon of gold, beneath the roof of sleeping leaves the dreams of trees unfold, when woodland halls are green and cool and wind is in the west, Come back to me, come back to me, and say my land is best. The antwife replies, When summer warms the hanging fruit and burns the berry brown, when straw is gold and ear is white and harvest comes to town, when honey spills and apple swells, the wind be in the west, I'll linger here beneath the sun, because my land is best. The ant says, when winter comes, the winter wild that hill and wood shall slay, when trees shall fall and starless night devour sunless day, when wind is in the deadly east, then in the bitter rain, I'll look for thee and call to thee, 
I'll come to thee again. The antwife replies, When winter comes and singing ends, when darkness falls at last, when broken is the barren bough and light and labor past, I'll look for thee and wait for thee until we meet again. Together we will take the road beneath the bitter rain. And they both sing together, Together we will take the road that leads into the west, and far away we'll find a land where both our hearts may rest. This is clearly an elven poem. If we hadn't already been primed for that by Treebeard, we, we would have been able to understand that very clearly. Both that this is an elven poem and that it has been rendered rather beautifully, rather thoughtfully in Westron, in the speech of men. How do we know that this is an elven poem? Well, the focus is very much an elven kind of focus, not least of all the primacy of the West. And there are some, there are some studies of this poem which would interpret that last passage, that, that, that shared stanza, together we will take the road that leads into the west and far away we'll find a land where both our hearts may rest, to say, oh, oh, it's Elvenholm. That's where the Entwives have gone, probably, and they're waiting for the Ents to join them, probably. But at the very least, Elvenholm in the west, the undying lands are the place where the, the Ents and the Entwives can coexist because it is fundamentally wild, but also fundamentally civil. It is, it is the tamed wilderness. It is the perfect collaboration between the impulse of the ant, the savage and, and wild impulse of the ant, and the civil social uh, impulse of the ant wife. But we must remember, this is an elven song. The elves are singing of the search for the ant wives, and their conclusion is, hey, the West, right? The wet. Take the straight road. Cross the great ocean. Not literally, of course, because you can't do that anymore. But take the straight road on an elven ship. Find yourself in the, in the realm of fairy. Find yourself in the ethereal undying lands. That's the best place to be, right? There are very few questions, actually, in life that can't be answered by, well, have you thought about going into the West? Have you thought about, you know, just giving up Middle Earth and, and retreating to the realm of Elvenholm? This is an elven perspective. This is an elvish perspective, literally an elvish perspective coded into the language that is used here. I'm not sure that that is the ultimate solution or even a desirable solution for the Ents and the Entwives themselves. I'm not sure quite what Treebeard understands of the West, honestly. I'm, I'm not certain about that. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that a little later. Yes, two trees could reunite in Valinor, says Princess Holstrich. Yeah, could be elvish. Could be, right? I mean, I don't know if we have a great tradition of there being two trees in Valinor, for example. I'm being very sarcastic there. Of course we do. Um, but let's take a look at the poem itself. When spring unfolds the beech and leaf and sap is in the bow, when light is on the wildwood stream and wind is on the brow, when stride is long and breath is deep and keen the mountain air, come back to me, come back to me and say my land is fair. This is the Ents pitch here. Okay, you've gone off to create your garden. We're kind of beginning here in the, the post-separation, the kind of Entwife diaspora that has happened here. But the Ents are calling out, when spring unfolds the beech and leaf, when spring is on the forest, when the stride is long and breath is deep and keen the mountain air, when we are at at our best, when we are in the prime of our Entish lives, come back to me, come back to me and say my land is fair. To which the ant replies, no, that's not what spring is. Spring isn't about the beeching leaf and the sap in the bough and light on the stream and wind on the brow. That's not what spring is. Spring, when spring is come to garth and field and corn is in the blade, when blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid, when shower and sun upon the earth with fragrance fill the air, 
I'll linger here and will not come because my land is fair. We're not just talking about the, the state of the lands here. We're not just talking about, no, your philosophy is this and my philosophy is this. And, and yeah, it's probably best if we separate, right? It's probably best if we, you know, we, we, can, oh, we can try and raise the kids in both cultures. I don't know. We can figure something out. But no, it's not going to work. Your vision of, of the landscape is not what I want. But it's more than that. Your vision of spring is not what I want, is the response of the antwives. Spring is not about the beech and leaf and the sap and the bough or the light on the wildwood stream. It is about blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid. And even the use of our word here, garth, field, corn is in the blade. When blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid, these are words that can only be associated with, with cultivation here, right? This is the vision of a farm. I'll linger here and will not come because my land is fair. No, I hear you. I get it. Even by, you know, dramatic, metaphorical, idiomatic extension, I know you're looking for me, say the antwives. But no, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. I'm going to chill here. Thanks. The ants reply, okay, not spring, summer. When summer lies upon the world, in a noon of gold, beneath the roof of sleeping leaves, the dreams of trees unfold, when woodland halls are green and cool, and wind is in the west, come back to me, come back to me, and say my land is best. This is the argument for summer in the forest. And again, by the way, this is how we know that it's an elvish song. Uh, when summer lies upon the world, and in a noon of gold, beneath the roof of sleeping leaves, the dreams of trees unfold... What do we know about the dreaming of forests? What do we know about dream forests? What do we know about golden-bowed and golden-leaved tree forests? We're kind of singing about Lothlorien here. We're, we're in, in, not kind of, actually. We're specifically singing about Lothlorien here. This is not just summer. Isn't summer great? This is summer in Lothlorien. No, say the antwives, because when summer warms the hanging fruit and burns the berry brown, when straw is gold and ear is white and harvest comes to town, harvest comes to town, both of these specifically civil references here. There is in the natural world no harvest, and there is in the natural world no town. We are absolutely talking about the society of men here. When honey spills and apple swells, though wind be in the west, I'll linger here beneath the sun because my land is best. No, I get your depiction of summer. I understand what you're saying. Sounds fine, sounds nice, have a great time, but no, not for me, because summer is not about all of these things that you suggest, the, the roof of sleeping leaves, the dreams of trees and full woodland halls are being green and cool. No, that's not what summer is. Summer is about the ripening fruit and the, the, the honey spilling and all of these, and the community of the harvest in the town. Not into it, thanks very much. Then we pivot. When winter comes, says the ant, when winter comes, the winter wild that hill and wood shall slay, when trees shall fall and starless night devour the sunless day, when wind is in the deadly east, then in the bitter rain, I'll look for thee and call to thee, I'll come to thee again. Winter is hard. Winter is deadly. Look at the language that we use. The winter wild that hill and wood shall slay, when trees shall fall and starless night devour the sunless day, when wind is in the deadly east, then in the bitter rain, I'll look for thee and call to thee. I'll come to thee again. I'm going to give up my woodland home. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to, to come find you. Okay, you're right. The winter sucks. I'm going to come to you. To which the antwife replies, yes, when winter comes and singing ends, when darkness falls at last, when broken is the barren bough and light and labor pass, when light and labor pass, the days now are too short to do any work. Now we are stored up for the winter, right? Now we've had the harvest in the town and our stores are replete with plenty. We've got apples and we've got honey. We are good to go for the winter. We've got corn by the bushel full. We are ready for the winter. Come to us. Come to us and find succor and comfort in the winter. 
I'll look for thee and wait for thee until we meet again. Together we will take the road beneath the bitter rain. Yes. Yes, says the antwife. But you have to come to me. I'm not coming back to the forest. The forest actually is the more primitive form of what we are doing in the garden, what we are doing in the field, what we are doing upon the farm. We are now capable of not just withstanding the winter, not just enduring the winter, but of repudiating the winter. The winter to you in your forest is a time of, of, of deadly cold and rain and chill and, and the scourging of the natural world. No, winter for us, we're by the fire. We're by the fire with plenty. That's what winter should be. But when you come, when you come to us, when you look for us again, we will welcome you. And then together, we'll take the road. We'll take the road into the West and we'll find a place where we can coexist. Whether or not the ants and the antwives could ever truly coexist, I mean, okay, we have to speculate about the antwives first. This is speculation stacked on top of speculation. I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but, but really, we, I fear it cannot be definitive here. Yes, yeah. Um, let me see here. Jackie had a comment that I wanted to call out, and now I've lost it. <laughs> Jackie, Tolkien had a deep-rooted belief that spouses had to respect one another's efforts and create space for them in order for marriages to work. Certainly, yes, in his own private life, he, he felt very strongly, yes. And Shane confirms, not compromise, but mutual respect. That is what makes relationships strong. But is that what we're talking about in the frame of this poem? I mean, ultimately, theoretically, yes, right? If we go to the Undying Lands, if we take the road into the West, then in theory, we both get what we want. That's going to be great. But we're not really talking about compromise. We're not talking about the coexistence of the ants and the antwives. We're talking about the triumph of agrarian culture. We're talking about the rejection of the primitive hunter-gatherer. The, the primitive, okay, hunter-gatherer is actually the wrong way of phrasing this, right? We're talking about the difference between a shepherd on the hills and a farmer. That's the distinction here. Obviously, that's a distinction that is based around, you know, the, 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 um, the farming of, of animals here. But that's the metaphor here. The antwives don't concede. They don't, they don't respond to the ants in a positive sense. What do the ants want? Come back to me, come back to me and say my land is fair. Come back to me, come back to me and say my land is best. The antwives say, um, no, I'll linger here and will not come because my land is fair. I'll linger here beneath the sun because my land is best. And then I'll look for thee and call to thee. I'll come to thee again. The, the longing there, the longing of that is truly beautiful. And then the antwives say, yes, I'll look for thee. I'm also here from where I am. I'm looking for you too. I'm waiting for you to come. I'll look for thee and wait for thee until we meet again. That's the, the tragedy of the ants and the antwives. They could possibly make it work. There could be ants in the world except for one small detail, the fundamental nature of ants. In order for entish society to continue, the ants themselves, the, the male ants, would have to be different. They'd have to give up the wild. They'd have to give up the light on the wildwood stream and the wind on the brow. When stride is long and breath is deep and keen the mountain air, they'd have to give all of that up. They could get, in exchange, the pleasures of the farm. They can get, in exchange, blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid. And we get, when straw is gold and ear is white and harvest comes to town, when honey spills and apples swells. What a gorgeously evocative image. Yes, spilling honey and swelling apples here. The, the, the ripe fecundity of summer on the farm. This is perfect, but it's not what we want. 
And of course, we could delve deep now into a, a comparison of you know, the civil and the savage, to go back to, you know, the West and the wild, if you prefer, the distinction that we drew back in the pages of The Hobbit, that as soon as we crossed the Misty Mountains, and, and or crossed, traversed, came through Goblin Town to the eastern side of the Misty Mountains back in the pages of The Hobbit, we started talking about the wild, capital W, the wild, and talking about the, the contrast between the gentle civil comforts of the West, whether we're talking about, you know, Bag End, or we're talking about the Prancing Pony, or we're talking about even Rivendell. Rivendell is only the West. Rivendell is of, crucially, the West. But in the East, the pleasures are different. The, the mechanics of life themselves are different. And now it turns out that if you go further East, if you go across the Anduin, well, there was a time when it was the West, right? If you go far enough East, it turns into the West again. If you go far enough East, it becomes civil again. Yes, this is the fundamental conflict of the ants. This is the great tragedy of, of the ants. As Gildart says, paradise is too much at times. That's, that's beautiful, yes. And Corporeal says, the failed harmony of cultivation and wilderness is how Tolkien, Tolkien saw society. It's the metaphor stuff again. Yes, he certainly saw this as a, not just a philosophical conflict, um, but a moral conflict, right? Uh, you know, we're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about this, and I'm already running short on time, so let's, let's keep pushing on. Um, yes, good. I think the ants, says Jackie, I think the ants in particular struggled with the ant wives' creation. Come back to me and say my land is best. I'm sorry, but no thank you. Um, right, this is, I mean, gosh, it's hard to think about this in 2017 without seeing, I think, some, some gender dynamics that were not intentional by the professor, but are nonetheless vivid and, and, and you know, somewhat disquieting for us here in, in the modern world. Uh, the ants are like, yeah, yeah, but have you seen my man cave? I mean, sure, the thing that you're doing is great, but I need you to come and check out what I've done and say that it's best. Not just come back, but say that it's best. And the wives are like, actually, no, 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 I don't think we're going to do that. You're welcome to come over and have what? Apple pie with honey butter? I, some kind of apple honey corn confection? Yes. Okay, let's keep pushing on here. That is our uh, song. That's the story of the Antwives. We get no resolution to the story of the Antwives. There is no more information. As I said, in his personal correspondence, the professor was very much of the opinion that the ants never find the Antwives. He doesn't entire, he, he does not offer even a kind of extra textual perspective on what happened to the, uh, the Antwives, not a conclusive extra textual perspective on what happened to the Antwives. There is a possibility that they have wandered off and that some linger, that some have turned tree-ish, that they have all been slain, that some have been corrupted, as I said, that some have turned tyrannical in the pursuit of, of perfect order, you know, a balance taken too far. And perhaps that, ultimately, is the compromise that exists between Ents and Entwives. It is the same compromise as we see in the Shire. There is a negative kind of farming. There is an immoral kind of farming. There is an evil kind of farming. We're going to talk about the scourging of the Shire right at the end of the book, but we already have enough information to speculate about that. We've seen the tearing down of the trees. We've talked about the presence of the miller, the kind of corruptive presence of the miller, and how the embodiment of that much power in a single man is always going to be problematic, is always going to be a challenge to a more egalitarian society, more egalitarian and agrarian society. But then we get the embodiment of Sam Gamgee, right? A farmer who does, a gardener who does not garden the way that the Lady Galadriel gardens through tyranny and diktat, you know? Sam does not decree. Sam nurtures. What do we make of that, that specific balancing act? What, what is the, the, 
the most interesting virtue that we associate with Sam in that regard then? What, what is it that separates the, the good gardener from the evil farmer? Well, it's the same virtue that we see echoed throughout the Lord of the Rings. What separates the good from the bad? Service. The supplication of one's own desire in the name of, of respect and, and understanding, right? We do not seek to dominate through knowledge the way that Saruman does, but we do seek to understand gently the way that Gandalf does, the way that Aragorn does, the way that Tom Bombadil does. We seek to understand gently, and we seek to understand the whole of the thing, not a particular individual element of that thing. Yes, as, as Heroes and Bard says, of course, condensing the thought into a perfect encapsulation here, agrarian farming equals good, factory farming equals bad. Yeah, pretty much, right? Pretty much. Do the Entwives take it too far? Well, there were a couple of suggestions that that may be the case. There were a couple of suggestions that maybe, yes, that maybe the absolute rule, the, the desire for absolute order in your agrarian society, in your, in your agricultural society, is going too far. And the references that we get here, the uh, when straw is gold and ear is white and harvest comes to town, when honey spills and apple swells, the wind be in the west, I'll linger here beneath the sun because my land is best. There is a sense that all straw is gold, uh, all ears are white, the harvest in the town is the most important thing, that there isn't space left for disorder, right? There is no space left for happy accidents. There is no space left for a very small scale kind of eucatastrophe, right? The idea that, well, I didn't plant that, that, that rose bush there, but it's, it sprouted there and I kind of love it, so I'm gonna leave that. This is a kind of low level, accidental creative impulse, right? The, the kind of the preservation of a space for chance, the preservation for a space for the intercession of grace, for the coming of the intended order, an order that is greater than you are. And this is reflected through Tolkien's approach to, well, good Lord, everything in his life, his family, his career, both his academic career and his literary career, certainly his creative acts, right? He doesn't want to dictate. He doesn't want to garden his manuscript. He wants to create a space where where, where serendipity can come into play, where, where eucatastrophe can come into play. He does not intend all of these things consciously and deliberately. He does not rule with a rod of iron, but he nurtures and cultivates and preserves spaces for grace, for chance, and for things which are outside of himself. That might be the key to reconciling the ants and the antwives, though in their way, of course, both are representative of... <laughs> somewhat extreme, you know, mortal impulses that we would certainly recognize from our own lives. All right. The Antwives were probably type A personalities, says Jackie. Absolutely correct. Yes. Oh, and the brilliantly named Variag of Khand says Antwives neglected their heritage produce. Right? There are no, like, like ancient grains here for the Antwives. It's all brand new, uh, brand new, um, uh, brand new species that we've got. Yes. Um, good. Good. Equating order with peace is problematic, says Jackie. 1,000% yes. That is, I mean, God, yes, if you want to distill, you know, Tolkien's moral outlook into one simple phrase, yeah. Order and peace, not the same thing. Even though Treebeard specifically makes that connection. You know, they wanted order, they wanted peace, by which they meant things staying put, things being where they are. Here's a question. Is that suggestive that the Entwives, unlike the Ents, did not allow for the gaining of sentience among their flock, 
if you like. The ants seem to encourage trees which want to become, which, which begin to become more antish, right? Do the ant wives encourage the corn stalk or the apple tree or the, the beehive that wants to become sentient? Probably not, because that is not ordered. Thus, we, we limit and restrict diversity, right? There is simply less variation in the world when you farm and garden than there is in the, the riotous anarchic tumult, the, the, the constant war of all against all, the, the, the constant you know, conflict of the wilderness. I absolutely must at this point move on. Seastar is asking though, um, uh, Jackie's saying somebody will compare this to Aldarian and Arendus. Uh, yeah. Seastar uh, says, are Sauron and Mordor forces of order or of chaos? I know not the time to discuss this. Uh, order, absolutely order. They want control. They want specifically order. It's a, hmm, they are not, you know, the, the chaotic evil kind of, of big bads. Chaotic evil big bads are almost never interesting. You know, evil for evil's sake is just never interesting. They want to dominate and they want to order, but order according to their vision. That is the root of evil in Tolkien's Legendarium. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's pivot away from this to the Entmoot and talk about some more Ents. Several Ents had already arrived. More were coming in down the other paths, and some were now following Treebeard. As they drew near, the hobbits gazed at them. They had expected to see a number of creatures as much like Treebeard as one hobbit is like another, at any rate to a stranger's eye, and they were very much surprised to see nothing of the kind. The Ents were as different from one another as trees from trees, some as different as one tree is from another of the same name, but quite different growth and history and some as different as one tree kind from another, as birch from beech, oak from fir. There were a few older ants, bearded and gnarled like hale but ancient trees, though none looked as ancient as Treebeard. And there were tall, strong ants, clean-limbed and smooth-skinned like forest trees in their prime. But there were no young ants, no saplings. Altogether, there were about two dozen standing on the wide, grassy floor of the dingle, and as many more were marching in. At first, Merry and Pippin were struck briefly by the variety that they saw, the many shapes and colors, the difference in girth and height and length of leg and arm and the number of toes and fingers, anything from three to nine. A few seemed more or less related to Treebeard and reminded them of beech trees or oaks, but there were other kinds. Some recalled the chestnut, brown-skinned ants with large, splay-fingered hands and short, thick legs. Some recalled the ash, tall, straight, gray ants with many-fingered hands and long legs. Some the fir, the tallest ants, and others the birch, the rowan, and the linden. But when the ants all gathered round Treebeard, bowing their heads slightly, murmuring in their slow musical voices and looking long and intently at the strangers, then the hobbits saw that they were all of the same kindred, and all had the same eyes. Not all so old or so deep as Treebeard's, but all with the same slow, steady, thoughtful expression and the same green flicker. As discussed with the Antwives, the morphology of individual ants can vary wildly. The morphology of an individual ant can apparently vary wildly in the course of its life. But the eyes, the eyes remain. And the eyes as physical evidence of their great age and antiquity, the depth and and slowness of their understanding, not to suggest that they are stupid, but, but to suggest that their thoughts run deep and slow. These are the common traits found among ants. I just adore this passage. I adore it so much. And you can see here, as you can see in so many other parts of, of the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's writing, just how much he loved trees, how much he loved the forest. Um, 
Let me see here. It seems to me that Marion Pippin's speech and the narrator's, says Joseph, gets ever so slightly entish while in Fangorn. It makes me wonder whether this is in a broader pattern in Lord of the Rings. All characters speak in a more hobbitish manner in the Shire, an elvish manner in Lorien, etc. Thoughts? Ha, huh, that's interesting. Um, in part, perhaps, we are never allowed to forget, or, or <laughs> we are actually allowed to forget. Sometimes we are even encouraged to forget, but we must never forget that... Tolkien was constantly mindful of his own authorial voice. And when I say his own authorial voice, what I mean is Bilbo's authorial voice or Frodo's authorial voice. These books, these accounts, this prose does not come to us from the mind and heart of J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, literally, yes, in the real world, it does. But in a broader sense, in a more metaphorical sense, and in a more true mythic sense... It doesn't. He is always mindful of the tradition of these stories. This is why, you know, we can be a little suspicious of the Entish song, because it's clearly an elvish song, and elves write from a given perspective. Elves have a particular, I was going to say agenda, but that sounds far too cynical and, and conspiracy theory-ish. Uh, elves see the world in a certain way and account for the world in a certain way. Hobbits account for the world in a hobbitish way. This is why, in part, there are huge differences between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. It's not that these stories are fundamentally different. It's not that he is outright retconning these stories. It's that the focus of our account is very different. So this is a hobbitish account, and hobbits are skilled storytellers. It is possible that, particularly for Bilbo and for Frodo, that they are kind of entering into, uh, in part, the mode of their own speech. You know how that, you know what I mean? The, the, the kind of, they are so deeply enmeshed in the account that they are delivering that they are, are slipping into that mode, kind of failing to maintain a more objective and stern and stentorian narrative voice. I don't think that Tolkien was particularly interested in that. So yes, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I'm not convinced that it is happening within the frame of the story. Let me put it this way, right? I don't think that this is happening to Merry and Pippin in this moment. I don't think that they themselves are becoming Entish simply by exposure to the ants, or becoming elvish during their time in Lothlorien or their time in Rivendell. But I do think that the narrative, I do think that when Bilbo sits down to compose the pages that he writes, and Frodo sits down to compose the pages that he writes, I do think that Tolkien, as the author slash, you know, translator, curator, archivist of this material, is mindful of that. Certainly, the way that he interacts with his own work through a process of discovery suggests that that may well be the case, yeah. Um, yes, as Joseph says, it certainly stuck out for me when Pippin referred to something as being root tip to leaf tip seemed so antish to me. Yes, I think that we are inspired by that in the moment, certainly, yeah. Um, good, good. All right, let's, um, oh, that's really interesting. Variag of Khan says, the POV is usually the weaker character. We don't get much of Aragorn's POV, never Gandalf's. No, you're right. How consistently is that true? Ha, huh. now I'm thinking back through all of our experiences so far. Does the narrative always default to the, the mm, I don't want to say weakest necessarily, but the smallest person present, the person of least stature present? Well, okay, not completely. Otherwise, we would pretty resolutely be in Pippin's narrative for the first third of the book, right? But, but we're not. We, we're generally in Frodo's POV for much of that. But I guess when Frodo is under pressure, we do tend to either go very deep into his POV or pop out of his POV entirely. Interesting. 
Interesting. Uh, yes, that's something that I'll need to think on, and we'll, we'll, we'll continue to talk about that as we go forward. It is becoming more and more apparent, you guys, that after we're done going through all of Tolkien's Legendarium, after we finish discussing The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion, we may well just start over with The Hobbit again and do this whole thing again. This may just be the cycle that consumes the rest of my life. I think that uh, I, I now have so many thoughts about The Hobbit that I want to go back and discuss and unpick and, and study and, and propose to you all that we may well go back at some point and maybe we'll take a few months off and then kind of circle back around to the beginning again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whose POV are we in in the Council of Elrond, says Keeper? Well, okay, I, I can't get too far off of this. We get multiple POVs in the Council of Elrond because we get multiple accounts. We get Gimli's account and Gandalf's account and Elrond's account and Bilbo's account. We get various stories. And as we enter into those passages within the Council of Elrond, we generally adopt that narrative voice. It's as if the camera is, you know, close up on Gimli as he tells our, it tells his story. So we get more distant shots of the rest, but we're close to Gimli. But then we also intersperse that with very close shots of Frodo. You know, we're still very close to Frodo, which leads me to believe that we're primarily in his POV through the rest of that. Okay. Let's uh, keep pushing on. We still have a few slides before we even get to chapter five. I wonder if we will. So while the Entmoot, Entmoot is happening, excuse me, the uh, hobbits slip away and talk amongst themselves. And if we're modulating our language here, we certainly modulate back down to a more hobbitish level as Merry and Pippin talk. I wonder where Isengard is, said Pippin. I don't know quite where we are, said Merry, but, the peak, but that peak is probably Methathras. Excuse me, Methadras. And as far as I can remember, the ring of Isengard lies in a fork or a deep cleft at the end of the mountains. It's probably down behind that great ridge. There seems to be a smoke or a haze over there, left of the peak, don't you think? What is Isengard like? said Pippin. I wonder what Ents can do about it anyway. So do I, said Mary. Isengard is a sort of ring of rocks or hills, I think, with a flat space inside and an island or pillar of rock in the middle called Orthanc. Saruman has a tower on it. There is a gate, perhaps more than one, in the encircling wall, and I believe there is a stream running through it. It comes out of the mountains and flows on across the gap of Rohan. It does not seem to be the sort of place for ants to tackle, but I have an odd feeling about these ants. Something I don't... Somehow, I don't think they are quite as safe and, well, funny as they seem. They seem slow queer and patient, almost sad, and yet I believe they could be roused. If that happened, I would rather not be on the other side. Yes, said Pippin, I know what you mean. There might be all, all the difference between an old cow sitting and thoughtfully chewing and a bull charging, but the change might come suddenly. I wonder if Treebeard will rouse them. I'm sure he means to try, but they don't like being roused. Treebeard got roused himself last night and then bottled it up again. A little hobbity perspective, plus a little bit of geography. Mary, we are reminded, studied the maps back at Rivendell. Pippin absolutely did not. That is not a Peregrine Took kind of thing to do. He apparently did not inherit this, this predisposition toward cartography, but Mary absolutely did, and he can give a brief account. Isengard, it's basically a, a flat plain in the middle of a ring of hills. There's a stream running through it. Orthanc stands in the middle. That's the hill or the tower or both. We talked a little about the etymology of the words Isengard and Orthanc last time, both connecting to this idea of, of iron and of cunning and of wrought devices and craft in that somewhat mechanistic, somewhat modern sense. This is a troublesome place, absolutely a troublesome place. Um, Oh, this is beautiful. Alice says, this description reminds me of Aslan. He isn't safe, but he is good. He is not a tame lion. That is great. Great observation, Alice. That's exactly the same kind of impulse that we're seeing. Goodness is not about gentleness, necessarily. It is not about civility, necessarily. It's not even about unity. You know, we talked a long time 
in the last session that we did about that great line from from Treebeard, I am not on anyone's side because no one is entirely on my side, you know? This idea that, that Mary and Pippin ask entirely the wrong question. Whose side are you on? What they mean by that is, hey, Treebeard, are you a good guy? Are you a good guy or a bad? Okay, maybe even more broadly than that. How scared should we be right now? And Treebeard doesn't answer the question that they mean because he's answering the question that they ask. Whose side are you on? Nobody's side. I'm on my own side. I have to be on my own side because none of you are on my side. None of you support me in my endeavors, support my philosophy, encourage my role in the world. So I have to be on my side. But that doesn't mean that he is a threat to the hobbits, right? That doesn't mean that he is a bad guy. The fact that he is not gosh, politically unified with, you know, the Hobbit perspective or even with the perspective of the fellowship, even the perspective of, you know, the White Council and the forces of good such as they are right now in the world of, of Middle-earth. The fact that he's not allied with them or aligned with them does not mean that he's a bad guy. Similarly, the fact that he is a good guy does not mean that he is harmless. A great power is stirring in Fangorn Forest right now, and we're going to see the proof of that later. Um, I wanted to call out as I scroll all the way back. Shane is referencing uh, the, the fantastic Tolkien scholar, uh, Michael Drought. Michael Drought has a lecture that deals in part with the POV in Lord of the Rings. Does anyone want the YouTube link? You have actually shared the YouTube link right here. Let me just tag that so that I can drop that into the... Um so that I can drop that into the show notes for this session. If you are listening to the podcast version, you will find that link in the show notes right, uh, right under the Patreon link beneath the little audio player that goes out. Um, Michael Drought is, as I say, one of the preeminent scholars of Tolkien of this age or any other age. He, his is a, a fearsome intellect, and he takes a more strictly textual approach than some other Tolkien scholars. That's not to elevate him above some other Tolkien scholars, but, you know, some Tolkien scholars are interested in, in linguistics, are interested in, in you know, the, the constructed languages of Tolkien. Some are interested in the biographical details of Tolkien's life. Some are interested in the deepest aspects of the legendarium. Some are interested in his theology. Some do close readings of the text itself. Drought is one of the more narratively technical critics and, and uh, analysts, you know, scholars of, of J.R.R. Tolkien. So he's, he's certainly fascinating to listen to and, and well worth your time and investment. Yeah. Good. Great. All right. Let's keep pushing on then. This is our uh, discussion of where Isengard is. And now we're going to move on to Bregelad. This is our, our younger Ent. He's kind of, uh, the, the hobbits are delivered into his care as Treebeard returns to the Antmoot. Bregalad stood for, I struggle with the pronunciation of this, right? Bregalad, I think, is the correct pronunciation, but because it has that, that you know, um, that, that Celtic kind of, of uh, Scots-Gallic kind of morphology to it, I want to pronounce it in a Scots way, and I always did pronounce it in a Scots way when I was reading The Lord of the Rings originally, where it would be Bregalad, you know, it would be, it would be a harder sound than that, and that doesn't sound entirely Entish to me. So forgive me. This is, I'm just going to indulge myself as I read this and we'll do it kind of with the Scots intonation here. We can, you can switch this out when you're reading the book yourself. Bregalad stood for some time surveying the hobbits solemnly and they looked at him wondering how he would show any signs of hastiness. He was tall and seemed to be one of the younger ants. He had smooth shining skin on his arms and legs. His lips were ruddy and his hair was gray green. He could bend and sway like a slender tree in the wind. At last he spoke and his voice though resonant was higher and clearer than Treebeard's. 
Ah, hmm, my friends, let's go for a walk, he said. I am Brigalad, that is Quickbeam in your language. But it is only a nickname, of course. They have called me that ever since I said yes to an elder ant before he had finished his question. Also, I drink quickly and go out while some are still wetting their beards. Come with me. He reached down two shapely arms and gave a long-fingered hand to each of the hobbits. All that day they walked about in the woods with him, singing and laughing, for Quickbeam often laughed. He laughed if the sun came out from behind a cloud. He laughed if they came upon a stream or a spring. Then he stooped and splashed his feet and head with water. He laughed sometimes at some sound or whisper in the trees. Wherever he saw a rowan tree, he halted a while with his arms stretched out and sang and swayed as he sang. Oh, Brigalad would be of a comparable age to Pippin. Yes, it says Heroes and Bards. He certainly reads like Pippin, doesn't he? But he also reads like another character. And for all that we spend time comparing Treebeard and Tom Bombadil, this is the ant version of Tom Bombadil right here. Quickbeam, Brigalad is the 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 ant version, the Fangorn version of Tom Bombadil. They walk through the forest singing and laughing. He laughs if the sun comes out from behind a cloud. He laughs if they come upon a stream or a spring. He laughs if they come upon a stream or a spring. Hey, we found it. We came around a corner and there's a stream here. Brilliant. This is exactly the kind of relentless, impetuous, authentic joy in his surroundings that we see from Tom Bombadil. Begalad is an ant, so he doesn't skip and hop and jump and spin in quite the way that Tom Bombadil does, and certainly his language doesn't have quite that same rhythm, that, 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 that unique cadence that Tom Bombadil's has, but I think that Tom Bombadil and Quickbeam would get along like a house on fire. I, uh, again, that's the second week in a row that I've used that as a metaphor when I'm talking about the ants, and I feel bad about it every time. They would get along famously. Let's, let's put it that way. Yes. Yes, Nate says, Quickbeam's laughter reminds me of how Buddhist monks are prone to laughter, right? Th- that idea that, that the world is just wondrous, that it is just full of joy. And if you open yourself up to moments of, of spontaneous pleasure, that they will happen all the time, of spontaneous amusement. Not laughing at the world, laughing with the world. That, to me, reads very much as, uh, as he is. <laughs> are we doing a little, little Bob Ross here? Happy trees, happy clouds, happy leaves, happy stream. You know, there are no accidents. This is just a happy little you catastrophe. Wow. Bob Ross also, I think, would probably get along famously with the professor. Yeah. Good. Good. And, and also with, with Quickbeam, also with Tom Bombadil. Yes. Good. Good. <laughs> oh, Seastar says, I have a brother named Rowan, so it's always dissonant to see Rowan's the trees get praised and revered. Rowan is a great name. I, I uh, went to high school with a girl named Rowan, who was just lovely, and, and I absolutely see the, uh, the praise bestowed upon, uh, upon Rowan's of all sorts. But these Rowan's are not sources of joy so much as they are sources of, of sadness. There were Rowan trees in my home, said Bregolad, softly and sadly. Rowan trees that took root when I was an enting, many, many years ago in the quiet of the world. The oldest were planted by the ants to try to please the ant wives, but they looked at them and smiled and said that they knew where whiter blossom and richer fruit were growing. Yet there were no trees of all that race, the people of the rose that are so beautiful to me. And these trees grew and grew, to the shadow of each was like a green hall, and their red berries in the autumn were a burden and a beauty and a wonder. Birds used to flock there. I like birds, even when they chatter, and the rowan has enough to spare, has enough and to spare. But the birds became unfriendly and greedy and tore at the trees and threw the fruit down and did not eat it. Then orcs came with axes and cut down my trees. I came and called them by their long names, but they did not quiver. They did not hear or answer. They lay dead. 
O Orofane, Lassemister, Canemirie, O Rowan fair, upon your hair how white the blossom lay, O Rowan mine, I saw you shine upon a summer's day, your rind so bright, your leaves so light, your voice so cool and soft, upon your head how golden red the crown you bore aloft, O Rowan dead, upon your head your hair is dry and grey, your crown is spilled, your voice is stilled, forever and a day, O Orofane, Lassimista, Carnemirie. The hobbits fell asleep to the sound of the soft singing of Bregolod. They seemed to lament in many tongues the fall of trees that he had loved. I just had to pull this because this moment again of tragedy. This isn't just Entish. This isn't just Tolkienian, if I can abuse the language to that point and further still. This is fundamental to our understanding of beauty in the realm of Arda. This goes all the way back to the, the singing of the Ainulindale, you know, the sadness of which its beauty chiefly came. This comes all the way back to the, the stories of elves. Why are elves so beautiful? Because of their sadness, because of their inherent and unavoidable tragedy, because of the, the long and storied loss that they have endured. Here, Quickbeam, here, Bregalad, represents some of that similar loss. Rowan trees took root when I was an anting many, many years ago in the quiet of the world. The oldest were planted by the ants to try and please the antwives. So there was already a conflict. There was already a tension between the ants and the antwives. And the ants planted trees, not cultivated trees, not encouraged trees, not roused trees to sentience and life, but planted rowan trees. And the antwives said, yeah, cute. Like what you've done with the Roman trees. Uh, have you heard of roses, though? Roses are pretty great. Roses are pretty awesome. You should come and check those out there on the far side of the Anduin. Come stop by in the winter, you know? When the forest sucks, come stop by our farm and check out our roses. And yet, Bregalat says, yet there are no trees of all that race, the people of the rose that are so beautiful to me. He loved these trees. He loved the Rowans. The berries in the autumn were a burden and a beauty, and I wonder birds used to flock there. I like birds even when they chatter, and the Roman had enough and to spare. But what happened? The birds became unfriendly and greedy and tore at the trees and threw the fruit down and did not eat it again. What is the, the greatest abuse that you can inflict upon a tree to take of its physical form and not put that, that resource to use? It's one thing to take the berries of the rowan. Bregalad is not angry at the birds for taking the berries of the rowan. That is what the berries of the rowan are for. But to take them and to cast them down and not to eat them? Well, we are drawing a, a direct comparison here between the birds and the orcs. Then orcs came with axes and cut down my trees. Were these rowan trees also left to rot on the earth, as, as Treebeard accounted earlier? I mean, that's the impulse, right? This is the tension. This takes us back to our discussion last time as... As Yavanna is is complaining to to uh, complaining far too 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 brittle and shallow a word. Yavanna is expressing her concern to Manwe that ah uh, the animals are going to be fine because the animals can move wherever they want, but no one is going to speak in the defense of the trees and the things that grow. No one is going to speak in defense of of the 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 plant life of Middle Earth. Like they need some guardians. This is where the ants came from, is to do exactly that, to stand against the rapacious appetites of everything else in the world when it comes to trees. And then we get our our song here. Uh, it, it's worth noting that the uh, Orofarne Lassimista Carnamidiae, these are actually three 
three terms that refer to, these are three names for the Roman tree. Orofarne, uh, uh, mountain dwelling, you know, dweller upon the mountain. Lassimista, leaf gray. And Carnemidiae, adornment of red jewels. That's the direct translation there. So Orofarne, Lassimista, Carnemidiae, mountain dwelling, leaf gray, adornment of red jewels. That's not, obviously these are elvish terms, so that's not the old Entish name for the Roman tree, but it's closer to the old Entish name for the Roman tree than Rowan tree, for example, right? Um, oh, that's fascinating. Seastar says, taxonomically, Rowan trees are in the vast rose family. Uh, oh boy, that's Latin. I'm going to struggle with that. Uh, Rosa, Rosa, Rosa Chai? I, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm, I'm very sorry. Yes. Oh, and Lynn is saying, as are cherries and prunes, etc. if I remember right. See, that's completely consistent, right? The ants plant the Rowan trees, and the antwives say, ah, fine but we have roses, we've cultivated roses, we didn't happen upon roses, we weren't walking through the, fo uh, the forest one day and came upon a rose and the sun came out from behind a cloud and we laughed in joy. No, we worked, we did the thing. We went and we cultivated roses and that's why roses are awesome. Makes a lot of sense to me taxonomically that these things are in the same family, yes. Good, good. Um, excellent. Transient beauty, says Variag of Khand. Yes, very good. That That's exactly the beauty of... of Oh gosh, okay, um, to delve into that. Yes, beauty comes in part from its transitory nature, even among the immortal elves, right? Yeah, okay, we'll definitely talk about it. And Sister says, I forgot how sad the Romans make Bregola. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. Okay, two more slides from this. Uh, are we even going to get to the White Rider? We might get uh, a couple of slides in. Let's see what we can do. Before long, they saw the marching line approaching. The Ents were swinging along with great strides down the slope toward them. Treebeard was at their head and some 50 followers were behind him, two abreast, keeping step with their feet and beating time with their hands upon their flanks. As they drew near, the flash and flicker of their eyes could be seen. Hum, hum, here we come with a boom, here we come at last, called Treebeard when he caught sight of Brigalad and the hobbits. Come, join the moot, we are off, we are off to Isengard. To Isengard, the Ents cried in many voices. To Isengard! To Isengard, through Isengard, be ringed and barred with doors of stone, though Isengard be strong and hard, as cold as stone and bare as bone. We go, we go, we go to war, to hew the stone and break the door, for bowl and bow are burning now, the furnace roars, we go to war, to land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roll of drum, we come, we come, to Isengard, with doom we come, with doom we come, with doom we come. There are few more emotive, more like immediately emotionally powerful pieces of poetry in all of the Lord of the Rings for me than, <coughs> excuse me, as I say, my voice not quite back where it should be and all of the Treebeard voice kind of stressing it a little further. There are few pieces of poetry in all of the Lord of the Rings that I find more rousing and stirring of the blood than the Isengard march. This is, this is a quintessentially Entish rhythm here, right? And it's replicated. Remember back when we were talking about Tom Bombadil and we observed that the rhythm of Tom Bombadil's poetry is present too in his, uh, in his prose, that, that 
in his prose, in his uh, in his attributed dialogue, right? As he is talking to Frodo and the other hobbits, we're getting the sense that he is actually still singing. There's still the same rhythm. There's still the same cadence. And we get that here too. Whom, whom, here we come with boom. Here we come at last. Come join the moot. We are off. We are off to Isengard. We're getting that same rhythm there. And then we start building the internal rhymes. There is the sense that the poem here, that the, the marching song of war is kind of emergent from the natural conversation and dialogue of the ants, that as they are talking to each other, the song emerges. No one sat down at any point and composed this song prior to the march. It emerges. Whom, whom, here we come with a boom, here we come at last, called Treebeard when he caught sight of Bregalad and the other hobbits. Come join the moot. We are off. We are off to Isengard, to Isengard, to Isengard. We get the crying out of the other ants. To Isengard, to Isengard. And then we move into the song. To Isengard, though Isengard be ringed and barred with doors of stone, though Isengard be strong and hard, as cold as, cold as stone and bare as bone. We kind of move into the poem here. This is, this is indicative of, of the rousing of the forest. This march, and we do get this march rhythm, right? It is this very simple, propulsive rhythm. And you can imagine as the Ents are marching forward and, and in time and with accord with each other, these 50 Ents marching through Fangorn Forest, you can hear the boom of their feet in perfect rhythm as you move through this. We go, we go, we go to war, to hew the stone and break the door, for bowl and bow are burning now. The furnace roars, we go to war. And then... Ultimately, the, the, the end of our, our circle here brings us back to a conversation that we had, I think, first... I don't remember if we talked about this in the pages of The Hobbit, but we certainly talked about it in the pages of the Council of Elrond. To land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roll of drum, we come, we come. To Isengard, with doom, we come, with doom, we come, with doom, we come. This is the Middle English version of doom, right? This is not the modern version of doom. We are not coming upon you with, with wrath and fury. We are coming upon you with judgment. That is the meaning of the word doom. We are judging you. We are finding you wanting. The, the destruction that we carry with us, we roused Ents of the Fangorn Forest. This is not fury. This is not even vengeance. This is justice. That is what has roused the Ents to march on Isengard. It's an enormously powerful thing. Yes, I love this righteous anger from Treebeard, says Nate. It is stirring. It absolutely is, yeah. Seastar says, the Ents marching song and the power it promises are beautiful. And Jackie observes beautifully, the Ents sap is boiling now. Yes, when was the last time that the Ents were roused like this? Have the ants ever been roused like this? Has Fangorn ever taken direct action in the world like this? Wow. We'll talk about that when we get to it. Yeah. Yes, uh, Lynn says, first Treebeard can't remember the word hill because it is such a short name for a thing that is so old, but then all of a sudden they use such general terms. Lynn, I, I like that, that observation. I think that what we are seeing here is the rousing, right? Ants left to their own devices slow and become treeish. And we, we draw that comparison multiple times, right? It's not just that they become less interested in the world, it's that they become slower. They become more old entish. But they have conversed in the past with elves, and elves are, by the standards of ants, extremely rapid creatures. Elven language in particular, though it is not as not as blunt and literal as, you know, Western or you know, the language of, of the hobbits here, it is still pretty blunt and, and purposeful, right? It is acute, it is sharp in a way that old entish by every account is not. But there has been 
an existent relationship between the two. So we know that ants can be roused. We know that ants can have conversations. Treebeard knew the word hill. He just didn't remember the word hill or didn't remember that the word hill corresponded to the place where he stood, right? That's probably more likely. He has heard of hills, yes, uh, tiny, you know, disposable words for immense things that dominate the landscape from the beginning of time to the end of time. But he didn't have need of the quick word when he had all the time that ants require. Now they don't have all the time that ants require. Now they need quicker words. To Isengard, to Isengard, to Isengard. Yeah, good. Um, yes, and, and so as, as Corporeal pulls out here, and so Burnham Wood goes marching to Dunsinane. Yes, this is Tolkien delivering on the promise of Macbeth here. And thus, to Isengard. This is our conclusion of the chapter here. The ants went striding on at a great pace. They had descended into a long fold of the land that fell away southward. Now they began to climb up and up onto the high western ridge. The woods fell away and they came to scattered groups of birch and then to bare slopes where only a few gaunt pine trees grew. The sun sank behind the dark hill back in front. Grey dusk fell. Pippin looked behind. The number of the ants had grown. Or what was happening? Where, where the dim bare slopes that they had crossed should lie, he thought he saw groves of trees, but they were moving. Could it be the trees of Fangorn were awake, that the forest was rising, marching over the hills to war? He rubbed his eyes, wondering if sleep and shadow had deceived him. But the great grey shapes moved steadily onward. There was a noise like wind in many branches. The ants were drawing near the crest of the ridge now, and all song had ceased. Night fell, and there was a silence. Nothing was to be heard save a faint quiver of the earth beneath the feet of the ants, and a rustle the shade of a whisper as of many drifting leaves. At last they stood upon the summit and looked down into a dark pit, the great cleft at the end of the mountains, Nankuranir, the, val the valley of Saruman. Night lies over Isengard, said Treebeard. This is the, the, the ultimate embodiment of the march to Isengard, right? The 50 Ents are roused. We get the Ents at the Ent Moot, and then presumably more Ents are roused in the, the, the vicinity of the Ent Moot, and we gather more as we begin the march, and now the whole forest marches with us. This is an enormously powerful moment, which we will conclude as we return to the adventures of Mary Pippin Treebeard et al. in future chapters. Um, yes, I always get goosebumps from this passage, says Lynn. I love the way that we pull all the way back here, right? We build and we build and we build. Um, the Ents were drawing near the crest of the ridge now and all song had ceased. Then we get night fell and there was silence. Nothing was to be heard save a faint quiver of the earth beneath the feet of the ants and a rustle in the shade of the whispers of many drifting leaves. At last they stood on the summit, looked down into the dark pit, the great cleft at the end of the mountains, and on Kurnir, the Valley of Saruman. We're getting longer, more kind of rhythmic language here. And then Treebeard gives us the perfect button on the chapter. Night lies over Isengard. Not the shadow, metaphorically speaking, but night, night has now come. The night of wrath has descended upon Isengard. Yes, they, they bring with them doom, and we will see how that works out in the chapters to come. Okay, I am actually at time, but we are going to uh, continue on. I, I want to do just a couple of... Uh, I want to do just a couple more slides as we move into chapter five, as we switch our focus away from Merry and Pippin, back to Gimli and Legolas and Aragorn and their experiences here on the fringe of the Fangorn Forest after having seen the mysterious old man watching their fire the previous night. We get this account the next morning. My very bones are chilled, said Gimli, flapping his arms and stamping his feet. Day had come at last. At dawn, the companions had made such breakfast as they could. Now, in the growing light, the growing light, they were getting ready to search the ground again for signs of the hobbits. 
And do not forget that old man, said Gimli. I should be happier if I could see the print of a boot. Why would that make you happy, said Legolas. Because an old man with feet that leaves marks might be no more than he seemed, answered the dwarf. Maybe, said the elf, but a heavy boot might leave no print here. The grass is deep and springy. That would not baffle a ranger, said Gimli. A bent blade is enough for Aragorn to read, but I do not expect him to find any traces. It is an evil phantom of Saruman that we saw last night. I'm sure of it, even under the light of morning. His eyes are looking out on us from Fangorn even now, maybe. It is likely enough, said Aragorn, yet I am not sure. I am thinking of the horses. You said last night, Gimli, that they were scared away, but I do not think so. Did you hear them, Legolas? Did they sound to you like beasts in terror? No, said Legolas. I heard them clearly. For the darkness and our own fear, I should have guessed that they were beasts wild with some sudden gladness. They spoke as horses will when they meet a friend they have long missed. So I thought, said Aragorn, but I cannot read the riddle unless they return. Come, the light is growing fast. Let us look first and guess later. We should begin here next to our own camping ground, some searching carefully all about and working up the slope toward the forest to find the hobbits is our errand, whatever we may think of our visitor in the night. If they have escaped by some chance, then they must have hidden in the trees or they would have been seen. If we find nothing between here and the eaves of the wood, then we will make a last search upon the battlefield and among the ashes. And there is little hope there. The horsemen of Rohan did their work too well. So we are fearful that it was, in fact, Saruman who watched us last night. The riddle of the horses is a curious one. They were not driven away out of fear, but ran away out of gladness, the renewal of a long acquaintance, according to Legolas and of Aragorn, too. Gimli is suspicious that he's looking for reassurance that the old man who visited them was actually there, was actually present, because if he wasn't, the alternative is much worse. No, it was just a phantom of Saruman. And lacking physical form is not necessarily an indication that the phantom of Saruman was any less dangerous. As Kildarts Winters says in the chat, Saruman, worst Santa ever. Right, there's a guy with a white beard came up. First, let's check for presents. Okay, we'd have no presents and all of our milk and cookies are still here. So probably not Santa. We can strike that off the list. Okay, let's move on. You know, Just drawing in a little C.S. Lewis into our world of J.R.R. Tolkien there. Yes, good. The Phantom of Saruman is the worst musical, says Princess Ostrich. That's excellent. <laughs> and Heroes and Bards observes, yes. Uh, when is Gimli not suspicious? Though, very fair. Gimli, usually suspicious. So we find here fresh signs of hobbits. We do a little, you know, CSI Fangorn Forest. It was not long before Aragorn found fresh signs. At one point near the bank of the Antwash, he came upon footprints, hobbit prints, but too light for much to be made of them. Then again, beneath the bowl of a great tree on the very edge of the wood, more prints were discovered. The earth was bare and dry and did not reveal much. One hobbit at least stood here for a while and looked back. Then he turned away into the forest, said Aragorn. Then we must go in too, said Gimli. But I do not like the look of this Fangorn, and we were warned against it. I wish the chase had led anywhere else. I do not think the wood feels evil, whatever tales may say, said Legolas. He stood under the eaves of the forest, stooping forward as if he were listening and peering with wide-eyed, wide eyes into the shadows. No, it is not evil, or what evil is in it is far away. I catch only the faintest echoes of dark places within the hearts of the trees, where, where the hearts of the trees are black. There is no malice near us, but there is watchfulness and anger. Well, there's no cause to be angry with me, said Gimli. I've done it no harm. That is just as well, said Legolas. But nonetheless, it has suffered harm. There is something happening inside, or going to happen. Do you not feel the tenseness? It takes my breath. I feel the air is stuffy, said the dwarf. This wood is lighter than murkwood, but it is musty and shabby. It is old, 
Very old, said the elf, so old that almost I feel young again, and I have not, as I have not felt since I journeyed with you children. It is old and full of memory. I could have been happy here if I had come in days of peace. I dare you could, said Gimli. You're a wood elf anyway, though elves of any kind are a strange folk. Yet you comfort me. Where you go, I will go, but keep your bow ready to hand, and I will keep my axe loose in my belt. Not for use on trees, he added hastily, looking up at the tree under which they stood. I do not wish to meet that old man at unawares without an argument ready to hand. That is all. Let us go. Does Legolas feel malice in Mirkwood? asks Seastar. Ha. Ha. That's an interesting question. I mean... Now? Well, we don't really have enough info. Oh, okay. When I say now, what do I mean? Um, the darkness within Mirkwood retreated following the departure of the necromancer. When the necromancer, as we are told by Gandalf, feigned to flee, when he left behind Dol Guldur and retired to his fastness in Mordor, apparently Mirkwood started to recover. The roads became passable once more. Presumably the spiders retreated to the, the darkest recesses at the heart of the forest, possibly even to the fortress of, Bar uh, of uh, Dol Guldur itself. So Mirkwood did lighten after the, the misadventures of, you know, Hobbit, uh, of, of Bilbo and company in the pages of The Hobbit. But now we have been told, remember when, when Frodo stood on Amon Hen and, and looked to the north and saw fire and conflict come upon the land? Darkness was spreading again. Shadows were spreading again in Mirkwood. So, yes, it probably got better for a while. Then it got worse. I'm sure that Legolas is attuned to the the rhythm of Mirkwood is attuned to the darkness of Mirkwood as, as any elf who has simply spent all of his life there is going to be attuned to it. But also the connection between Thranduil's kingdom and Mirkwood as a whole. Yes, I'm inclined to say that they would. I'm inclined to say that as the elves of Lothlorien know Lothlorien, right? As, as more specifically, the elves of Karas Galathon know Lothlorien as a whole. So I'm sure the elves of Thranduil's kingdom, of, of the, the forest elf uh, realm there in Mirkwood, know Mirkwood as a whole. That seems to me to be very consistent, yes. So we get fresh signs of the hobbits and, hmm. Well, okay, let's do, let's do one here as we move on. Let's get to the point of the introduction of the White Rider. Actually, let's do two more. We'll do two more slides and then we'll get into the deep backstory on our bonus episode on Sunday. Well met, I say again, said the old man, coming toward them. When he was a few feet away, he stood, stooping over his staff with his head thrust forward, peering at them from under his hood. And what may you be doing in these parts? An elf, a man, and a dwarf, all clad in elvish fashion. No doubt there is a tale worth hearing behind it all. Such things are not often seen here. You speak as one that knows Fangorn well, said Aragorn. Is that so? Not well, said the old man. That would be the study of many lives. But I come here, now and again. Might we know your name, and then hear what it is you have to say to us, said Aragorn. The morning passes, and we have an errand that will not wait. As for what I wish to say, I have said it. What may you be doing, and what tale can you tell of yourselves? As for my name... He broke off, laughing soft and uh, long and softly. Aragorn felt a shudder run through him at the sound, a strange, cold thrill, and yet it was not fear or terror that he felt. Rather, it was like the sudden bite of a keen air, or the slap of a cold rain that wakes an uneasy sleeper. My name, said the old man again. Have you not guessed it already? You have heard it before, I think. Yes, you have heard it before. But come now, what of your tale? The three companions stood silent and made no answer. 
There are some who would begin to doubt whether your errand is fit to tell, said the old man. Happily, I know something of it. You are tracking the footsteps of two young hobbits, I believe. Yes, hobbits. Don't stare as if you have never heard the strange name before. You have, and so have I. When they climbed up here the day before yesterday, and they met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? And now you would like to know where they were taken. Well, well, maybe I can give you some news about that. But why are we standing? Your errand, you see, is no longer as urgent as you thought. Let us sit down and be more at ease. The white rider here, walking that line between reassuring and intimidating, I think. We get this key response from Aragorn. At the laughter of the mysterious white rider, Aragorn felt a shudder run through him at the sound, a strange cold thrill, yet it was not fear or terror that he felt. Rather, it was like the sudden bite of a keen air or the slap of a cold rain that wakes an uneasy sleeper. It is a sudden, stark, but clean feeling. It is a, a refreshing feeling, almost. It is almost too refreshing for comfort, but it is stimulating. It is arousing in that sense. I mean, we kind of have to push on to the next slide just so we can do this properly, I guess. We can circle back around to this. We get the, the, we get the accounting of the hobbits. Yes, says the, the, the white rider. I know of hobbits. You know of hobbits. We all know of hobbits. You know of hobbits. I know that you know of hobbits. You know that I know that you know of hobbits. Let's, you know, set aside the pretense. Yes, you have an urgent errand, but you can sit here and talk with me a while. You know my name. I know about hobbits. What can we make of this? The old man took no notice, but stooped and set himself on a low, flat stone. Then his grey cloak drew apart, and they saw beyond doubt that he was clothed beneath all in white. Saruman, cried Gimli, springing forward with his axe in hand. Speak! Tell us where you have hidden our friends. What have you done with them? Speak, or I will make a dent in your hat that even a wizard will find it hard to deal with. The old man was too quick for him. He sprang to his feet and leapt to the top of a large rock. There he stood, grown suddenly tall, towering over them. His hood and his grey rags were flung away. His white garments shone. He lifted up his staff, and Gimli's axe leapt from his grasp and fell ringing on the ground. The sword of Aragorn, stiff in his motionless hand, blazed with a sudden fire. Legolas gave a great shout and shot an, ar and shot an arrow high in the air. It vanished in a flash of flame. Mithrandir! he cried. Mithrandir! Well met, I say to you again, Legolas, said the old man. They all gazed at him. His hair was white as snow in the sunshine, and gleaming white was his robe. The eyes under his deep brows were bright, piercing as the rays of the sun. Power was in his hand. Between wonder, joy, and fear they stood and found no words to say. At last Aragorn stirred. Gandalf, he said. Beyond all hope you return to us in our need. What veil was over my sight, Gandalf? Gimli said nothing but sank to his knees, shading his eyes. Gandalf, the old man repeated, as if recalling from old memory a long disused word. Yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf. He stepped down from the rock and, picking up his grey cloak, wrapped it about him. It seemed as if the sun had been shining, but now was hid in cloud again. Yes, you may still call me Gandalf, he said, and the voice was the voice of their old friend and guide. Get up, my good Gimli. No blame on you and no harm done to me. Indeed, my friends, none of you have any weapon that could hurt me. Be merry. We meet again at the turn of the tide. The great storm is coming, but the tide has turned. He laid his hand on Gimli's head, and the dwarf looked up and laughed suddenly. Gandalf, he said, but you are all in white. Yes, I am white now, said Gandalf. 
Indeed, I am Saruman, one might almost say, Saruman, as he should have been. But come now, tell me of yourselves. I have passed through fire and deep water since we parted. I have forgotten much that I thought I knew, and learned again much that I had forgotten. I can see many things far off, and many things that are close at hand I cannot see. Tell me of yourselves. And so we will move next time into Aragorn's accounting, the story of what has transpired since Gandalf fell deep beneath the earth at Khazadum. It's Gandalf, you guys. Gandalf is, well, what? We're going to get his account so we can parse that a little more cleanly next time. We can, we can look a little more clearly at what actually happened to him. So we will hesitate here before we say things like Gandalf has returned from the dead. Gandalf has been resurrected. Gandalf has been reincarnated. Gandalf is back, baby. Better than ever. Gandalf 2.0, the white wizard now. Come anew. Saruman as he was meant to be, perhaps. But look here at what happens to our, our party as Gandalf is revealed. And this, of course, is in the rich tradition of power revealed in Middle-earth. We have seen this with Aragorn. You know, we saw this as we, we, passed, uh, as we passed beneath the ancient statues of Numenorean kings. Frodo looks back and he sees Aragorn uncloaked. Frodo sees Aragorn uncloaked at Rivendell as he is standing with, uh, with Elrond and with Arwen, clad as if in the manner of an elven prince there. And we've seen versions of this before. We've seen versions of this from Gandalf before, of course. But this is perhaps a new high. The old man was too quick for him. He sprang to his feet and leapt to the top of a large rock. There he stood, grown suddenly tall, towering above them. His hood and his gray rags were flung away. The passive voice there, not he flung away his hood and his gray rags. They were flung away. They were driven away by the force of his magnificence, by the light of the sun. The gray was cast away from Gandalf. His white garments shone. He lifted up his staff and Gimli's axe leapt from his grasp and fell ringing on the ground. The sword of Aragorn, stiff in his motionless hand, blazed with a sudden fire. Okay, Gimli's axe is cast to the ground because Gimli has taken action against Gandalf. But Anduril, Flame of the West, the sword that has been reforged in Aragorn's hand, it blazes with fire. Is this a response from Gandalf? Is Gandalf causing this? Is this Anduril illuminated here in the reflected light of this new sun, the blaze of, of the white wizard come among them? Legolas gives a great shout and shoots an arrow high in the air. It vanished in a flash of flame. Mithrandir, he cried, Mithrandir. So Legolas recognizes Gandalf and his bow already pulled, his bow already drawn. He fires the arrow high in the air and it bursts into flame. This does not seem to be an intentional effect, but rather a consequence of the fire that is here. This is the coming of, of the good fire. Remember when we talked about about Gandalf facing down the Balrog on the, the bridge of Khazadum. We talked about the two kinds of fire, you know, the bright white fire that is associated with, you know, I am the servant of the secret flame, you know, but then also the Balrog wreathed in fire and smoke, the flame of Udun, right? There is fire that is good and fire that is bad. And here we are getting fire that is good. We are getting the white fire. We are getting the sun. This is the connection with Gandalf now newly uncloaked. They all gazed at him. His hair was white as snow in the sunshine and gleaming white was his robe. The eyes under his deep brows were bright, piercing as the rays of the sun. So it's metaphor, 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 simile, simile, simile here, connecting him to light and brightness and sunlight. Power was in his hand. Then we break from the metaphor, right? Or, ha, huh, do we break from the metaphor? We do, actually, I think, literally break from the metaphor. Power was in his hand. He is 
empowered. He is possessed of power at this point. Between wonder, joy, and fear, they stood and found no words to say. Between wonder, joy, and fear, they get this entire response to Gandalf, but Gandalf is now greater. Gandalf uncloaked is greater. Gandalf the White Wizard is very different from Gandalf the Grey, you guys. Gandalf the White is much more, more in every sense, in every uh, by every possible metric, in every quantifiable way. Gandalf the White is more than Gandalf the Grey. So they fear, they, they, they feel fear here, even in this moment of joy and wonder. Gandalf is, in the truest sense, in the Middle English sense of which Tolkien would approve, awesome. Then they stir. At last, Aragorn stirred. Gandalf, beyond all hope, you've returned to us in our need. What veil was over my sight? What veil was over my sight? How did I not see that it was you? Gandalf. Gandalf, the old man repeated, as if recalling from old memory a long disused word. Yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf. So in the previous slide, when he's saying, you know my name, you've used it before, you know who I am. He remembers that they know his name, but does not apparently remember that name. Uh, this takes us all the way back to the, the beginning of The Hobbit, right? Uh, this is, this is uh, I am Gandalf, and Gandalf means me. You know, you have forgotten that I belong to it. The, the, the power of this name of Gandalf. Yes, Gandalf has passed not from the memory of the world, certainly not from the memory of the world, but kind of passed in a sense from his own memory, and now he is restored. And of course, he behaves in immediately kingly fashion, not just gently, not just wisely, not just kindly with Gimli, but literally in kingly fashion. Gimli said nothing, but sank to his knees, shading his eyes. Then Gandalf steps down, cloaks himself again. It seemed as if the sun had been shiny, but was now hid in, cl hid in cloud again. We can't deal with this magnificence. We can't deal with this radiance all the time. Gandalf, you need to take it down a notch so that we can, you know, interact as people interact. So he does. He chooses to cloak himself. He chooses to, 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 diminish his own light for now so that he can interact more freely, so that he's not as intimidating, not as awesome. Yes, you may still call me Gandalf, he said, and the voice was the voice of their old friend and guide. He is coming down to their level. He is literally condescending to them in this moment. He is, as kings often do, reducing himself voluntarily to make those around him feel comfortable. This is a great act of, of condescension. This is the act of a wise and good king. Get up, my good Gimli. No blame to you and no harm done to me. Indeed, my friends, none of you have any weapon that could hurt me. Be merry. We meet again at the turn of the tide. The great storm is coming, but the tide has turned. Things now are stirring. Things now are changing. Perhaps the fate of the world is not quite what we thought it would be. We'll discuss that as we describe the, the tension, the conflict between Orthanc and Barador in our next session. He laid his hand on Gimli's head, and the dwarf looked up and laughed suddenly. Gandalf, he said, but you're all in white. That laying on of the hand, the touching of Gimli's head, this, this kingly gesture is perfectly appropriate for Gandalf at this point. And what happens? What happens to Gimli? He is restored. He is restored in two ways. He is restored through forgiveness, and he laughs. When was the last time Gimli laughed? When was the last time Gimli felt joy? Was it in Lothlorien? Probably, right? I don't think it's been since then. He's been fearful. He's been edgy. He's been tetchy. He's been having a hard time with the mad dash, this, this, this epic run, this marathon sprint across, across Rohan. And now Fangorn, now he's got to deal with Fangorn and the, the specter, the illusion, the potential presence of Saruman too. 
as if he hadn't been dealing with enough. This has been a tough week for Gimli. But at the touch of Gandalf, he is restored and is restored to laughter, is restored to joy. The dwarf looked up and laughed suddenly. Gandalf, he said, but you're all in white. Yes, I am white now, said Gandalf. Indeed, I am Saruman, one might almost say. Saruman as he should have been. He has, well, not usurped the position of Saruman, right? Because Saruman voluntarily gave up his position. Remember, the last time we dealt with Saruman, he was not Saruman the White anymore. He was now Saruman of many colors. He had broken that that mythic, that mythopoeic white light of creation and refracted it into many colors. He wanted the whole spectrum. He had co-opted, by being Saruman the White, he had kind of co-opted the light of creation, that light from that, that springs from God and only God, right? There's this primary light from which all light is derived in, in Tolkien's legendarium and indeed in Tolkien's personal theology, it would seem. I urge you to go and read the poem Mythopoeia that he wrote for C.S. Lewis that was a major contributing factor in C.S. Lewis's um, adoption of, of, of faith, C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, entry into the world of, of faith at that point. Tolkien is primarily responsible for that by the means of the poem, Mythopoeia. There's something very appropriate about Tolkien writing a poem about writing poems and that basically making the case to, uh, to C.S. Lewis, not just that fantasy fiction is inherently valuable and, and respectable, but also kind of connecting it back to these matters theological. So we're, we're getting that same sense here. Saruman has, has dismissed the white light of God in favor for the many-colored light of man, right? He has, has kind of cast aside purity in the name of, of I, I don't want to say diversity because diversity, you know, this is not a positive thing. He, he's cast aside purity for applicability, for, for utility, for functionality almost, right? He's forgetting the, the whole of the thing and is studying the fragment of the thing. That's what Saruman has done. And that's left a gap in the order of wizards. Now, Gandalf has stepped up. He has ascended. He has evolved like your favorite Pokemon, and he has learned some new moves, let me tell you. I have passed through fire and deep water since we parted. I have forgotten much that I thought I knew and learned again much that I had forgotten. I can see many things far off, but many things that are close at hand I cannot see. Tell me of yourselves. We'll talk about the mechanism by which Gandalf was... Well, the mechanism by which Gandalf fell and ascended and was restored ultimately next week when we get our account. Not next week, of course, on Sunday. I have to wrap up, you guys, because I'm getting awfully perilously close to our two-hour limit here on Crowdcast. This has been an absolute pleasure. I have had a great time talking about these uh, chapters with you. We will conclude on Sunday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. We will talk about, in fact, let me put up the slide to show you. We will talk about the rest of this chapter. We will talk about Gandalf's account. We will talk about what has happened to Frodo and so on and so forth. But we will also talk a little about the Amazon TV show. I am going to, well, speculate a little. We're going to talk about what we know. We're going to speculate a little. And then, because it has been requested by, I don't know, 50 people out there, my, my email box was my email inbox was hit with a deluge this week of requests to talk about a possible adaptation for Amazon. Uh, I'm going to talk about what I would do. I'm going to talk about the story that I would tell uh, in the broadest possible sense. And we together collaboratively, I think are probably going to talk a, a little about the story that we would tell. I want to hear your ideas too. So that's going to be 10 p.m. Eastern, Sunday, November 19th, 2017. That is going to be the 40th session of There and Back Again. You guys, thank you so much for joining me. I don't, I'm afraid, have any time to get to questions. So if you have questions, Oh, Lynn is asking, can I say, okay, let's take a very quick look here. Um, 
Lynn asks, I have literally two minutes, how are we supposed to think about new baby ants if they haven't been sung into being but are spirits? Do spirits procreate? Yes. Yes, I guess. We don't get much information here. Um, do new spirits enter the world? Well, yes, the spirits of men, certainly, right? The spirits of men enter the world. Do the spirits of dwarves enter the world? Yes, I suppose so. Even elves, remember, when we talked about the the um, division of the elven tribes right at the beginning of time, right? As, the, as the, the elves awake in ancient prehistory, we talked about the three tribes of the elves and how they moved through the world and recruited more elves to their number. But at the end of that process, there were 144 elves. That was it. Our kind of first round, our, our, our first draft picks here for the elven tribes, 144 elves. There are obviously many more. Thus, yes, elven, elven souls and spirits enter the world when they do, they are then functionally immortal. Uh, human spirits, hobbit spirits enter the world. When they do, they are not functionally immortal. They will die and depart the world. They will go to their ultimate reward. We don't know where the spirits that, that animate the ants came from. We don't know whether they were minor Maiar. They might be. They might be, you know, of the Ainur. They might be, you know, quasi-angelic spirits. It's possible, though that seems a little unlikely, simply because the magnitude of the Ents doesn't seem to match what we expect of the magnitude of even the least Maya that we're, uh, Maya that we're familiar with. Um, I, I would probably suggest nature spirits, right? I think that Ents are literally awoken trees, in the same way that dwarves are awoken stone, right? That seems to be the, the, the uh, elemental interaction there. What is interesting is that Iluvatar himself grants the dwarves life and agency. He, he embodies the dwarves. After Aule has crafted them, Iluvatar puts the souls of the dwarves into the bodies of the, of the dwarves. But it's pretty clear from the pages of the Silmarillion that we read, uh, this is chapter three of the Silmarillion of Aule and Yuvana, it's pretty clear that it is Manwe who casts forth the spirits into the bodies of the ants. It is of a different order, right? These are slightly different things. Um, and, and certainly the dwarves are not supposed to be in the song. But the ants, according to Yavanna, and ultimately according to Manwe, are supposed to be in the song. So maybe there's a distinction there. We're just not sure. But yes, to, to answer your question specifically, Lynn, yeah, apparently souls can just, spirits can, can procreate. Spirits, assuming that all of these spirits are of the same order, what happens to an ant when it dies? I have no bloody idea. I have no idea at all. I cannot tell you what happens to the soul of an ant. Um... I mean, if it is a nature spirit, it would presumably dissipate back into nature, kind of a, a conservation of spiritual energy there, perhaps. It is possible also that they are spirits of the elven order, that is, spirits of the of the elven type and, and magnitude. That is, it's it's possible that the Entish souls, therefore, go off to, to the halls to await the coming of the new world, maybe. Um, it's also possible that they depart the world. We've, we've no knowledge of this. I, I can't speculate on that. But yes, it does seem as though the Entings come uh, Entlings come along because, yes, spirits can procreate when in physical form. Um, Princess Ostrich asks... Um, Oh, Angela asks, they divide like cells divide? Boy, look, that's really complicated. That is theologically really, really complicated. Are new spirits created? Are new spirits created as kind of hybridized syntheses of existing spirits? This is, this is you know, 
we need a, a someone well versed in in Catholic theology specifically to talk about the origin of spirits, the origin of souls here to to kind of speculate about this. But yes, I mean possibly at least they, they bud. Perhaps that's more appropriate for the ants. Um, Princess Ostrich asks. I'm going to answer this in one minute. Here we go. I see in the ants and the ant wives, Yavanna and Ale. Yavanna, who cares for the trees, creates the ants after her image. Ale, the creator, her husband serves as an inspiration for the ant wives. Question: What about the dwarves? Are there female dwarves? Yes, there are female dwarves. We know almost nothing of female dwarves. Almost nothing about female dwarves. But yes, there are female dwarves, and certainly the the lineage of the dwarven clans suggests that dwarves reproduce in very much the way that we expect, you know, the mortal races to reproduce. It seems as though male and you know, when a dwarf and a lady dwarf love each other very much, that's basically how dwarves work. Um I'm ah, I like very much the observation that the entwives seem to manifest part of the, mm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I can follow you there in this comparison, Princess Ostrich, because you're right, there is, there is an act of creation about the Entwives, right? Gardening is an act of creation, but it is not the kind of act of creation that we see from Ale and, you know, the dwarves. This is not the, the same creative act as the, the smith is engaged in at his forge, right? This is not the crafting from nothing of something or the crafting from the raw material into the refined material. It's not quite that. It is cultivation. It is of a different order. And technically, of course, Yavanna is also the the uh, goddess deity she is the valor of growing things she is the lady of growing things all that grows in the earth is her domain so she is just as much the the lady of gardens and farms as she is of of the forests and wild places so i'm not entirely sure that i can go with you but i do certainly see yes there is an echo there of that same that same tension between the 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 raw and the refined, the the wild and the civilized, you know, the 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 savage and the social, as we've discussed before. That there is absolutely a similar kind of tension there. That is absolutely going to do it. I'm gonna get cut off. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that you will be able to join me all all of you will be able to join me on Sunday. And I will talk to you then. Until then, take care. Bye.